0: Going to read this evening from the Canons of Dort. If you wish to follow along, you'll find it on page 259 in the Book of Forms and Prayers and 897 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Last Lord's Day, we began looking at the Scriptures as uh, guided by the Canons of Dort. And uh, we I read the first two articles, and this evening I want to read articles 3, 4, and 5. Article 3, the preaching of the gospel. In order that people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends proclaimers of this very joyful message to the people He wishes and at the time He wishes. By this ministry, people are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified, for how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without someone preaching, and how shall they preach unless they have been sent? Article 4, a twofold response to the gospel. God's anger remains on those who do not believe this gospel, But those who do receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered through Him from God's anger and from destruction and receive the gift of eternal life. Article 5, the sources of unbelief and of faith. The cause or blame for this unbelief, as well as for all other sins, is not at all in God but in man. Faith in Jesus Christ, however, and salvation through Him is a free gift of God. As Scripture says, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Likewise, it has been freely given to you to believe in Christ. And then if you'll turn to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, to the book of Acts chapter 13, Acts 13, beginning at verse 13, and I'll read from there to the end of the chapter, page 1172 in the Pew Bibles if you haven't found it yet. Acts 13, beginning at 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, "'Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. "'The God of this people Israel chose our fathers "'and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, "'and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. "'And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness, "'and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, "'he gave them their land as an inheritance. "'All this took about four hundred fifty years.'" And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abram, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, And as for the fact that he raised them from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thus far, God's Word. In the classic novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, the author Alexander Dumas tells a story of a young man, Dante. Dante had been horribly treated by those who were supposed to be his friends, publicly maligned, secretly arrested, and confined to an island fortress. And while he's in this prison, Dante plots his revenge against those who had robbed him of his future, of his wife, and of his family, determined to get them back for what they had done for him, or to him, rather. And then the rest of the story recounts how he wonderfully escaped from prison and then carried out his devious plans of revenge. Now, a story like that resonates because fallen human nature often has that as its default position. You wrong me, and I'll pay you back somehow. It might not be in any visible way, but it might just be in the thoughts of our minds towards that person, or we might avoid them, or we might gossip about them and malign their name. Revenge is very much a part of fallen human nature. And it is against the backdrop of the human propensity to revenge or to seek vengeance and to repay people for what they deserve that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shines in all of its brilliance. Because if there was anyone who has been wronged, it is gone. If anyone has been mistreated and dishonored, it is gone. If anyone has a right to repay punishment on those who have wronged, it is God. And yet, that's not the picture of God that we read in the Scriptures. We read about how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We read about how God would not be unjust if He were to unleash His judgment upon all wicked people. But at this juncture in history... God doesn't do that at all. In fact, God loves the world. And He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the kindness and generosity of a God who has been wronged and rejected, who has been hated and despised. And it's that same passion, that same love that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rejected by the Jews, scorned by the religious leaders. They clamored for His crucifixion, and then He was hung on the cruel cross by the Romans. And you would think that if anyone had a reason to pay back evil to those who had wronged Him, it would be our Lord Jesus Christ. But in a way that is so contrary to Dante and the Count of Monte Cristo, while our Lord Jesus is in prison, he does not plot revenge against his enemies. Instead, he schemes a way to bring them blessing. And after his resurrection, when he meets with his disciples and tells them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, you might ask him, what are you going to use that authority for? Are you going to use it to pay them back? He says, no. What I want you to do instead is to go to all the nations, to all those who have rejected and despised and scorned me, go to all people and tell them to lay down their arms and to plead for mercy, because though I could punish them in my just judgment, I will freely offer grace and pursue their reconciliation. I like to think of what our Lord Jesus does as His revenge, sweet revenge, because instead of paying back people evil for evil, He pays back evil with good by sending His church among the nations with the proclamation of life and liberty and freedom in His name. That's how the Lord pays back those who have done Him wrong. At least that's what He does at this particular juncture in human history. And we see that very thing here in Acts 13, with the story of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch in Pisidia. We're told that it's the Antioch in Pisidia just for your interest's sake because a Greek king, Seleucus Nicator named 16 cities after his father Antiochus uh, throughout the empire, and so this particular one named after his father is the one in Pisidia. And the Apostle Paul and Barnabas arrive in that city, and they do what they've always do, or what they always did, whenever they came into a new city. They went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They sat down because they weren't leading the synagogue, they were there as attenders. And then the Scriptures were read from the Law of Moses and from the prophets, and then What was commonly done is that the ruler of the synagogue would ask if there were anyone in the crowd who could give a message. Does anyone have a word of encouragement for the people? And Paul and Barnabas seize this opportunity. Paul stands up and then gives a message of encouragement. Now, place yourself in Paul's position. If you wanted to encourage Jews and God-fearing Greeks who are gathered in front of you, what would you tell them? What kind of encouragement would you give them? Well, the answer is you tell them the only thing that you could tell them to give them encouragement. You tell them the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul does. He does a quick run through the history of the people of God. And we see that in the history of the people of God, in his dealings with the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ's coming was promised, his crucifixion was promised, as was his resurrection. And so Paul begins at the beginning. The God of this people Israel, he says, chose our fathers. Right there, the Apostle Paul speaks of the establishment of Israel as the people of God, as an expression of God's grace. God took the initiative. He chose the fathers. And then he blessed them. Even when they were in the land of Egypt, he prospered them. And then he led them out of the land of Egypt with uplifted arm, bore with them in the wilderness because they were such a difficult, grumbly, complaining kind of people, gave them the land of Canaan as he promised, ruled them by judges, gave them the prophet Samuel. Then when they clamored for a king, he gave them Saul. And then finally he gave them David, a man after his own heart, a man who would do all his will. And David then becomes the father of the dynasty from which our Lord Jesus Christ would come. And so he says in verse 23, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus as he promised. The coming of the Lord Jesus as the king was prophesied in the Scriptures. But the Jews did not recognize Jesus for who he was. Though they had read the Scriptures, though they knew the prophets which were read to them every Sabbath in the synagogue, They did not receive him as their king, and so they rejected him. They called for his death, conspired with the Gentiles, asked Pilate to put him to death, to have him executed, and he was executed. He was put to death on the tree. But the striking thing was is that even though the Jews did not follow the Scriptures in the sense that they embraced Jesus Christ as he was offered to them, they did fulfill the Scriptures because the Scriptures promise that Jesus would be rejected by man, that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering, and that he would die the cursed death in the place of sinners. So unwittingly, though the Jews did not honor the Word of God, we're told there in in verse 27, that they fulfilled the word of God, and the Lord Jesus was crucified. Paul says, On a tree, to highlight that his death was the death of the cursed, because everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God, the law said in Deuteronomy. So the crucifixion of Christ was promised in the Old Testament scriptures but not just his crucifixion. If, if that were the end of the story, if that were the end of Jesus' life, it, it would be a most discouraging and horrible thing. He might have given it his best shot to be the, the Savior, the one who would save his people from their sins, but, but he would have failed if all he did was lived and died. And so Paul continues with this word of encouragement and says that the Scriptures prophesied his resurrection In verses 30 to 37, he speaks about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and he bookends it. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 37, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And then between those verses, he says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. We know it's true because uh, there are people around us who have seen him raised from the dead. There are eyewitnesses, but more significantly than that, We know it's true because the Scriptures said He would rise. They said it in Psalm 2, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. They said it in Isaiah 55, I will give the holy and sure blessings of David. And then again in Psalm 16, we're told that God would not let His Holy One see corruption, that humans generally die, they're placed in the grave, and their bodies corrupt. But not this man, this son of David, this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was placed in the grave, but the grave could not hold him. Death could not conquer him because he had conquered death in the cross. And on the third day, God raised him up in victory and in vindication. That's the message of encouragement that the Apostle Paul brings to the Jews. He opens the Scriptures, and of course when you do that, he proclaims the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Paul goes on. You would think that God's dealings with the Jews would end after they rejected the Son of God come in the flesh. He had been patient with them throughout the whole Old Testament Scriptures. He had delivered them. He had borne with them. He put up with them in the wilderness. Didn't destroy them because Moses, the mediator, stood in the breach. He had promised them destruction through the prophets, but then promised that after destruction, he would bring them back out of bondage and back into the promised land and then he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, and they despised and rejected him. You would think that God would just wash his hands off them, go to someone else, forget about them. But he doesn't do that. He's so generous. He's so kind. He's so persistent in his kindness. What does he do? Well, he offers them salvation in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Well, what is it about Jesus that makes him able to forgive sins? Well, it's because he died on the tree. He died under the judgment of God. He died as a curse of God, as the cursed of God. That is, he took upon himself the place that sinners deserve and bore the punishment for that, so that now on the other side of the tree, raised from the dead, having paid the penalty for sin, having satisfied the judgment of God in his own death, the Lord Jesus Christ is raised and offers forgiveness to all who hear his voice. So That's what Paul says. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, you brothers who clamored for Jesus' death, let it be known to you that this Jesus is offering you forgiveness of sins. And it's remarkably simple to receive the forgiveness of sins. You receive that through faith. Whoever believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law demands perfect obedience, but it's a Herculean task. It's actually an impossible task. You can try your best, but you will never succeed. It's, a, it's an attempt, a futile attempt to get right with God. But here is God now understanding human weakness and human sin, knowing that no one can be justified by the obedience of the law. He offers Christ to them, And through Christ, there is freedom from the judgment of God. Because in Jesus Christ, God justifies the ungodly by taking away their sin and punishing Christ for their sin and then giving the righteousness of Christ to sinners so that they stand before God with a perfect record as if they had never sinned and as if they had been fully obedient all their lives, as obedient as Christ himself was obedient for them. And it's all through faith. It's not by works. It's not by effort. It's by resting in Jesus Christ. It's by relying on him. It's by trusting in him, throwing yourself on his mercy. Some of you spoke to me last week about the illustration I used at the end of the sermon from John G. Payton as he struggled to find in the Onwan language a word for faith, and he came across that incident where he was sitting on a chair. I'll tell it again for those who weren't here. He was sitting on a chair, and someone walked by with his—he was sitting on a chair with his feet on the ground, and someone walked by, and he said to them, what am I doing? And the lady said, you are sitting on a chair. And then he picked up his legs and put his feet on the cross section of the chair and then leaned back. And he says, what am I doing now? And the lady says, you are fakaron grongo. You are leaning wholly, completely leaning, trusting nothing else except that chair. And he said at that moment, I had the word for Faith. That's what belief is. Trusting, relying wholly on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting that he will do everything that needs to be done to reconcile you to a holy God, to take away your sins and to give you his perfection so that you might be received by God. Paul says, this is what I'm proclaiming to you. I know you Jews have been rebellious throughout generations. But listen, I'm proclaiming this good news to you. This is the message of encouragement I'm bringing you. This is the message of salvation that you're hearing. I'm bringing this to you. And then he ends the section in verses 40 and 41 with a warning. Now, we don't like warnings generally. Sometimes, when children go out to do something or teenagers go out to do something uh, that is a little bit sketchy, you, you warn them to be careful. And they kind of shrug it off and are irritated that, that you would think that, that they need any kind of warning because they're, after all, very wise. But, but Paul gives us warning to these Jews and, and these uh, God fears. In verse 40 and 41, he says, Beware, therefore, Lest what is said in the prophets should come about, he quotes here from Lamentations, no, Habakkuk 1 verse 5, look you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not not believe even if one tells it to you. Do you know what he's saying? This is as glorious as it is sobering. What he's saying is that you can kill the Lord of glory You can put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. You can clamor for his death. Crucify him, crucify You can join your voices with the crowd. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. It's astonishing. He says, but if you hear the offer of salvation that I am giving you today and do not receive it, do not believe in the Lord Jesus and embrace it in faith, you will not be saved. You will have an eternity of horror that even if one tells you how bad it is, you will not believe how bad it is. It's so unthinkably horrible. And So he warns them, don't make that mistake. Christ is offering forgiveness to you. Embrace it. Take your guilty conscience to him that he will cleanse it. Take all of your sins to him, and he will forgive them. Take everything to him, and he will receive you. Because salvation is through faith alone. So that's the message of the Apostle Paul. God in his kindness does not only do this great work of salvation in Jesus Christ, but he proclaims it to people. I'm sure some of you have had the experience of talking with someone and they said, just, I I got this thing at Canadian Tire. It's just astonishing. How much did you pay for it? Well, I just paid like $47. It was on sale. It was a crazy sale, 30% off, plus double your points. And you said, you've said to the person, why did you tell me? I didn't know. I missed the sale. And similarly with the gospel, God doesn't want to do this great work in Jesus Christ and then have nobody know. But what he does is he accomplishes salvation in Christ, and then he proclaims the good news, publishes glad tidings to the nations of what Jesus has done so that sinners might be brought back to him. Well, what is the response? Well, you see the response in verses 42 to 52 of our chapter, and there's a lot going on here that I just want to highlight before we notice the two responses. First of all, look at verse 42. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And then, 44, the next Sabbath, almost the the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. There was just this amazing interest in the gospel. Wouldn't that be remarkable to see? So many people are not interested in the gospel. They're not impressed with it at all. They're not moved by it. They're not clamoring to hear it. I remember when I was in seminary, I was speaking with one of my friends, and he he was telling me about this church that he was a part of then. One Lord's Day morning, the minister preached the the Word, and the service was over, and the people just stayed there. They wouldn't get up and leave, and they they demanded that he continue to preach, that he take up the Word of God again and, and proclaim the gospel once more. They had such a hunger, such an interest in the things of God. and That's what we see here. Whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What an electricity must have been there as the good news of Christ was proclaimed. So you have that going on. And then you see in verse 45 the the jealousy of the Jews. When they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Remember how uh, in the Gospels it said that it was because of envy that. Jesus was put to death by the Jews, and that envy continues. The Jews see the crowds, Gentiles, and they thought, we don't want Gentiles to participate in the grace of God. We want to be elite. We don't want them to share in the blessings that we share. You would think that that's just unthinkable. Of course you would want everyone to know the blessings of the gospel in Jesus Christ. But not all people are like that. Even in Christian churches, sometimes when God brings an influx of people into the church, people who are outsiders, it can be uncomfortable for those who have been in the church for years. They don't recognize their church anymore. Instead of being joyful and thankful that God in His grace is bringing people who are hungry to hear the Word of God, sometimes there's a spirit of jealousy that is... uh, evidenced. And so there's uh, general interest, and then there's the jealousy of the Jews. And then notice, there's the gladness of the Gentiles. So when the Jews began to speak evil of Paul and revile him, notice that Paul doesn't wilt. He doesn't back down. We read in verse 46 that Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This is why the Gentiles are so happy. Because Jewish jealousy means Gentile joy. It's it's amazing how how God worked this out. We we take it for granted that... uh, We sit under the preaching of the Word because it's such a common thing. We come here each Lord's Day morning and evening, and the Word of God is opened, and the the truth is proclaimed. But it's a rare thing if you think about it. Do you ever think about it, how rare it is? I mean, in the city of Lethbridge, 100,000 people, how many people actually hear the Word of God any given Lord's Day? And then just think of the masses in the world. How few hear the gospel. And so it's no wonder these Gentiles are glad. They get get an opportunity to hear the word of life. Now, it's come through Jewish rejection, absolutely, but but nonetheless, it's an amazing thing that when the Gentiles heard that, that God had intended from the beginning that the gospel would not go just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, we read in verse 48 that they were glad, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. You see, what what Paul is saying is is that that God had designed that when the Jews rejected the gospel, that God would then turn to the Gentiles. And Paul says uh, that God has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, that's astonishing, this, this verse in itself, because it's a quotation from Isaiah 49, verse 6, where the Lord is speaking to His Son, the Lord Jesus, and, and saying to Him, you, you know, it's, uh, I, I've sent you to bring salvation to the, to the Jews, but that's, that's too small a work for you. You can do more than that. And so it's too light a thing that you should be my servant just to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's what God said about his son. And now Paul says, well, I am the ambassador of Christ. I am Christ's representative. So that it's not only that God has sent Jesus to be a light for the Gentiles, but he's made me a light for the Gentiles in that I proclaim the gospel of Christ, not just to the Jews, but to the ends of the earth. So there's a general interest here. There's Jewish jealousy. There's Gentile gladness. But at the end of the day, there are only two responses to the gospel, two responses, and only two. We sometimes like to think that there might be another category for us. We don't really want to be too committed. We don't really want to th- reject it. But we kind of waver in hoping that there's a third way. There's no third way. As our canons say, there's a twofold response to the gospel, and only two. And you see it here as well. Some Jews and Gentiles believe. You see that in verse 43, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. That's a way of speaking about them embracing the faith. As you see in verse 48, the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So there were Jews and there were Gentiles who believed. And there were Jews and there were Gentiles. Who did not believe, who resisted, who rejected, who heard the offer of, the, of salvation in Jesus Christ and wanted nothing to do with it. There's only two responses. You either embrace Christ, lean wholly on him, or you stiff arm him and go it your own way. There's only two. But there's only blessing, there's only freedom, and liberty for those who believe the crucified Son of God. So, what's the difference between believers and unbelievers? Well, the answer is uh, there's no difference between unbelievers and believers in themselves. They're all equally bad. There's no one who seeks after God. Paul tells us in Romans 3, there's none who do good. No, not one. There's no one righteous, not even one. Everyone rejects the gospel. Everyone hates God by nature and his neighbor. The difference is not in the sinner. The difference is in the grace of God towards them. And so you see there that uh, those who believed do so because of God's grace. Notice in verse 43 that after they followed Paul and Barnabas, they spoke to them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. It was grace that had taught their hearts to fear. And now Paul says in Barnabas, continue in that grace unto the end. And then look at what it says in verse 48. Some believed the Gentiles. Well, who of the Gentiles believed? Well, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a reference to God's sovereignty and His choosing of certain people to inherit the blessings of salvation. It's a choice that He has made from before the foundation of the world. He set His love on certain people and appointed them for eternal life, and and others He left so that they didn't enjoy eternal life. But these believed because of God's eternal choice of them from before the foundation of the world as Paul says in Ephesians 1 for he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him and then notice in verse 52 the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit that's why they believed. it's all of grace it's grace from before the foundation of the world it's grace in time as the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes their redemption by his own death and resurrection. And then it's the grace of the Holy Spirit that softens hard hearts and introduces sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ and changes their will so that when they see him, they believe him, they rest wholly upon him. Well, then why do people disbelieve the gospel? If we believe because of God's grace, then we must disbelieve because of something God has done? No, it's not the way it goes. Look at what Paul says in verse 46. It was necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside. You judged yourselves unworthy of eternal Why did the Jews not receive the blessings of God's grace? It's not because God didn't choose them. That's never the biblical response to that question. It was because their own hearts rejected Christ. They thrust it aside. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, they would not bend the knee and embrace Jesus Christ as He was offered to them. They would not acknowledge Him as the Savior King. And if we do, it's always because of grace. And if you're a Christian believer tonight, you know that fact because you know your own heart you know how hard it is and how stubborn we sometimes be can be. We know how, that, how even as Christians, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And if God by His grace had not found us, and if God by His grace doesn't keep us, we'll be lost. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. The grace that sent the Son into the world grace that sent ministers of the gospel so that we have heard the words of life, grace that has worked in us so that hearing we have believed and believing we have been saved. To God be the glory great things he has done. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we love you and worship you. Salvation is of the Lord. We do not take any credit. We know that it would be sheer folly to think that we've contributed in any way. If you had not chosen us, this heart would still refuse you. And so we thank you for mercy. We worship you for sovereign grace. And we pray that we would delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be glad, we would glorify the word of the Lord that we would live our lives for your honor and glory. We pray for the nations, for those in darkness, and ask that you would use us as instruments, that we would be lights for the nations, that we would bring the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. So help us this week in our schools and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. Give us opportunities to speak well of the Lord Jesus, to commend him to sinners as the only way in which they can be freed. And we pray that you would bless our words for your glory. Bless us in all the activities of our lives this week. Go with us. You know the concerns that some of us have, the burdens that await us or that are upon us, the the difficulties that await us. We ask you, Lord, that you would not leave us, but that you would go with us that we might know your ever-present nearness and that you are a helper in time of trouble. And we pray this in our dear Savior's name. Amen.